section thirty nine of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lily craik chapter four part fifteen scottish prose writers before the middle of the sixteenth century a few prose writers had also appeared in the scottish dialect a digest of practical theology composed for the use of king james the fourth in his native tongue by a priest called john de arlandia in the year fourteen ninety still exists in manuscript apparently an autograph of the author in the advocates library at edinburgh this work says Leyden, who has given an account of it with some extracts in the preliminary dissertation and prefixed to his edition of the complaint of scotland exhibits a curious specimen of the scottish language at that period and the style as well as the orthography are more uniform and approach nearer the modern standard than those of some writers who lived almost a century later a moral treatise entitled the Porteus, that is the wide mecum or manual of nobleness translated from the french by andrew cadieu was printed at edinburgh in fifteen o eight the conclusion of it the only portion that is known to have been preserved is reprinted by Leyden in his dissertation pages two o three to two o eight and also by mr david lang in his collection entitled the knightly tale of go la grousse and gawain etc edinburgh eighteen twenty seven the scottish history of hector boethius or boethius boethius or boyce translated from the latin by john belladin was printed at edinburgh in fifteen thirty seven and a translation by the same person of the first five books of livy remained in manuscript till it was published at edinburgh in quarto in eighteen twenty nine a second edition of the translation of boethius having also been brought out there in two volumes quarto the same year but the most remarkable composition in scottish prose of this era is the complaint of scotland printed at st andrews in fifteen forty eight which has been variously assigned to sir james inglis knight a country gentleman of fife who died in fifteen fifty four to wedderburn the supposed author of the compendious book of godly and spiritual sangs and ballads reprinted from the edition of sixteen twenty one by sir john graham dalzell octavo edinburgh eighteen o one and by its modern editor the late john Leyden, in the elaborate and ingenious dissertation prefixed to his reprint of the work octavo edinburgh eighteen o one to the famous poet sir david lindsay this is a very extraordinary piece of writing as a short extract or two will show for the better comparison of the language in all respects with that spoken and written in england at the same date we shall in our first specimen preserve the original spelling the following is from a long episode which occurs in the middle of the work entitled anna monologue of the actor 
thereafter i heard the rumour of ramache fowl and of beastus that made grit bear quilk passed beside furnace and bogus on green banks to seek their sustentatione their brutal sounded redound to the high skies while the depa who cavernous of clenches and rochus cragus and certvit high not of that same sound as they beast head blowen it appeared be presuming and presupposing that blabberan echo had been hidden and whole whole cried and her hath answer quaen narcissus victor sought for his sarandus queen he was in an our forest far from many folk and there after for love of echo he drowned in his own drowvel not to tell truth of the beastus that made such bare and of the din that the fowls did their sundry sounds had neither temperance nor tune for first firth on the fresh field the nault made noise fifth money loud low bait horse and baeus did fast knee and the foulest necker the bullets began to buller quay and the ship began to blate because the calves began to mow quay and the dogus burk it then the soon began to quern quay and thy herd the ass tear quilk gart the hennis keckle quen the cocus crew the chuckens began to purr quen the gled gohillisit the fox followeth the fed guys and gart them cry clake the gay lingus cry it quilk quilk and the duckus cry it quack the ropen of the rainus gart the crass crope the hutted crayus cry it varit varit quay in the sonus murnet because the grey ghoul ma pronosticat on a storm the turtle began for to great cohen the cushet zulit the tittlen follow it the gulk anda gart her sing gook gook the do quoted her sad song that soundeth like sorrow robin and the little varn var hamely and inventor the aragolin of the salu gart the ille ingol then maeus made mert for to mock the merle the larak made melody up in the skies the nick and gale at the nick sang suet nodus the tucketus quiet chukus neck quayan the pietus clarit the girling of the sterling gart the sparrow cheap the lint quick hit sang counter pint quayan the ozel selpit the green serene sang suet quayan the goals spink chanted a reed shank quiet my foot my foot and oxy quiet to it the herons gaff and gireld scratch as the cow led benna in her fear cull hill gart the quahapus for flay its nest for far from home a still more ostentatious display of the wealth of the writer's native dialogue follows in the description of a sea scene ending in a fight into this he has poured a complete dictionary of naval terms some of which set translation or explanation at defiance but many of which are still in familiar use among the fishing population of the sea-coast of fife from whom either lindsay or inglis would be likely enough to learn them Leyden describes them generally as in part of norman in part of flemish origin we will pass on and select for our next extract 
a portion of the author's natural philosophy and here we shall strip his clear and expressive style of the cumbrous and capricious old spelling which makes it look as if it were all over bespattered with mud to the eye of a modern reader now to speak of the generation of the dew it is ain humid vapour generate in the second region of the air in ain fair calm night and sign descends an ain temperate coldness on the green herbs in small drops the hair rhyme in ain called dew the wilk falls in misty vapours and sign it freezes on the erd the mist it is the excrement or the superfluity of the cludes the wilk falls fray the air in ain sweet rain wilk rain can naught be per savit be the sight of men hailstones is ain congealit rain wilk falls on the ear be grit vehemence and it falls rather on the day light nor on the night the snaw is ain congealit rain frozen and congealit in the second region of the air and congeals in divers massive cluds wilk stops and empeshes the operation of the planets to exerce their natural course then the vehemence of the planets bracks they cluds fray the force of the wilk there comes fire and ain grit sound wilk is terrible to be hard and that terrible sound is the thing that we call the thunder but or we hear the thunder we see first the fire howbeit that they proceed at ain instant time the cause that we see the fire or we hear the thunder is be reasoned that the sight and clearness of anything is mare swift toward us nor is the sound the evil that the thunder does on the ear it is none or we hear the crack of it oft times we will see fire slot howbeit there be nay thunder hard the thunder slays mony beasts on the fields and when it slays ain man that is sleepened he shall be thunden dead and his een apen the thunder is mace dangerous for man and beast when there comes nay rain with it the fire slot will consume the wine within ain pipe in ain deep cave and the pipe will resave nay scathe the fire slot slew ain man on the fields and it melted the gold that was in his bag and it melted not the wax of ain seal that was in that samen bag in rome there was ain noble princess call it marcia grit with child she was on the fields for her recreation where that the fire slot strake her and slew her not but yet it slew the child in her womb there is three things that are never in danger of thunder nor fire slot that is to say the lorry tree the second is the selch wilk some men calls the sea-wolf the third thing is the iron that flees so high the historiographers rehearses that tiberius caesar emperor of rome had ever ain hat of lorry tree on his head and all sea gart mac his pale yons and tents on the fields of selch skins to that effect that he might be firth of the danger of the thunder and fire slot the best remedy contraire thunder and fire slot is to men and women to pass in how caverns under the air or in deep caves because the thunder does mace damage till high places it is worthy of remark that although we have here unquestionably the scottish dialect distinctly marked by various peculiarities indeed the author in his prologue or preface expressly and repeatedly states that he has written in scotch in our scottish language as he calls it yet one chief characteristic of the modern scotch is still wanting the suppression of the final l after a vowel or diphthong just as it is in barber and blind harry this change as we before remarked is probably very modern 
it has taken place in all likelihood since scotch ceased to be generally used in writing the principle of growth which after a language passes under the government of the pen is to a great extent suspended having recovered its activity on the dialect being abandoned again to the comparatively lawless liberty or at least looser guardianship of the lips english poets hawes barclay the english poetical literature of the first half of the sixteenth century may be fairly described as the dawn of a new day two poetic names of some note belong to the reign of henry the seventh stephen hawes and alexander barclay hawes is the author of many pieces but is chiefly remembered for his pastime of pleasure or history of grand armour and la belle pucelle first printed by winken de word in fifteen seventeen but written about two years earlier wharton holds this performance to be almost the only effort of imagination and invention which had appeared in our poetry since chaucer and eulogizes it as containing no common touches of romantic and allegoric fiction hawes was both a scholar and a traveller and was perfectly familiar with the french and italian poetry as well as with that of his own country it speaks very little however for his taste but among the preceding english poets he has evidently made lydgate his model even if it should be admitted that as wharton affirms he has added some new graces to the manner of that cold and wordy versifier lydgate and hawes may stand together as perhaps the two writers who in the century and a half that followed the death of chaucer contributed most to carry forward the regulation and modernization of the language which he began barclay who did not die till fifteen fifty two when he had attained a great age employed his pen principally in translations in which line his most celebrated performance is a ship of fools from the german of sebastian brandt which was printed in fifteen o eight barclay however besides consulting both the french and a latin version of brandt's poem has enlarged his original with the enumeration and description of a considerable variety of follies which he found flourishing among his own countrymen this gives the work some value as a record of the english manners of the time but both its poetical and its satirical pretensions are of the very humblest order at this date most of our writers of what was called poetry seem to have been occupied with the words in which they were to clothe their ideas almost to the exclusion of all the higher objects of the poetic art and that perhaps is what of necessity happens at a particular stage in the progress of a nation's literature at the stage corresponding to the transition state in the growth of the human being between the termination of free rejoicing boyhood and the full assurance of manhood begun which is peculiarly the season not of achievement but of preparation not of accomplishing ends but of acquiring the use of means and instruments and also it may be added of the aptitude to mistake the one of these things for the other skelton but the poetry with the truest life in it produced in the reign of henry the seventh and the earlier part of that of his son is undoubtedly that of skelton john skelton may have been born about or soon after his fourteen sixty he studied at cambridge if not at both universities began to write and publish compositions in verse between fourteen eighty and fourteen ninety was graduated as poet laureate a degree in grammar including versification and rhetoric at oxford before fourteen ninety was admitted ad undum at cambridge in fourteen ninety three in fourteen ninety eight took holy orders was probably about the same time appointed tutor to the young prince henry afterwards henry the eighth was eventually promoted to be rector of dis in norfolk and died in fifteen twenty nine in the sanctuary at westminster abbey where he had taken refuge to escape the vengeance of cardinal wolsey 
originally his patron but latterly the chief butt at which he had been wont to shoot his satiric shafts as a scholar skelton had a european reputation in his own day and the great erasmus has styled him Brintanicarum literarum de cus et lumen the light and ornament of english letters his latin verses are distinguished by their purity and classical spirit as for his english poetry it is generally more of a mingled yarn and of a much coarser fabric and many of his effusions indeed poured forth in sympathy with or in aid of some popular cry of the day he is little better than a rhyming buffoon much of his ribaldry is now nearly unintelligible and it may be doubted if a considerable portion of his grotesque and apparently incoherent jingle ever had much more than the sort of half-meaning with which a half-tipsy writer may satisfy readers as far gone as himself even in the most reckless of these compositions however he rattles along through sense and nonsense with a vivacity that had been a stranger to our poetry for many a weary day and his freedom and spirit even where most unrefined must have been exhilarating after the long fit of somnolency in which the english muse had dozed away the last hundred years but much even of skelton's satiric verse is instinct with genuine poetical vigour and a fancy alert sparkling and various to a wonderful degree it is impossible where the style and manner are if not so discursive at least so rushing and river-like to give any complete idea of the effect by extracts but we will transcribe a small portion of the bitterest of his attacks upon wolsey his satire or little book as he designates it entitled why come ye not to court extending in all to nearly thirteen hundred lines our barons be so bold into a mouse-hole they wold rin away and creep like a miney of sheep dare not look out at dur for dread of the mastiff cur for dread of the butcher's dog would weary them like an hog for an this cur do nar they must stand all afar to hold up their hand at the bar for all their noble blood he plucks them by the hood and shakes them by the ear and brings them in such fear he baiteth them like a bear like an ox or a bull their wits he saith are dull he saith they have no brain their estate to maintain and maketh them to bow their knee before his majesty in the chancery where he sits but such as he admits none so hardy as to speak he saith thou huddy peak thy learning is too lewd thy tongue is not well thewed to seek before our grace and openly in that place he rages and he raves and calls them cankered knaves thus royally doth he deal under the king's broad seal and in the chequer he them checks in the star-chamber he nods and becks and beareth him there so stout that no man dare rout duke earl baron nor lord but to his sentence must accord whether he be knight or squire all men must follow his desire but this mad amalek like to a mamalek he regardeth lords no more than post hordes he is in such elation of his exaltation and the supportation of our sovereign lord that god to record he ruleth all at will without reason or skill howbeit the primordial of his wretched original and his base progeny and his greasy genealogy he came to the sank royal that was cast out of a butcher's stall he would dry up the streams of nine kings reams all rivers and wells all water that swells for with us he so mells that within england dwells i would he were somewhere else for else by and by he will drink us so dry and suck us so nigh that men shall scantly have penny or half penny god save his noble grace and grant him a place endless to dwell with the devil of hell for an he were there we need never fear of the fiend's blake 
for i undertake he wool so brag and crake that he would wold than make the devils to quake to shudder and to shake like a fire drake and with a cold rake bruise them on a break and bind them to a stake and set hell on fire at his own desire he is such a grim sire and such a potestolate and such a potestate that he would break the brains of lucifer in his chains and rule them each one in lucifer's throne i would he were gone for among us is none that ruleth but he alone without all good reason and all out of season etc another of skelton's satirical invectives his bouge of court that is bouche a cour diet allowed at court which is written in the common stanza of seven decasyllabic lines and altogether with much more sobriety has some strong allegorical painting but in a hard and heavy style and the force is also more conspicuous than the invention another of his productions is a drama entitled magnificence a goodly interlude and a merry in rhyme and running to nearly twenty-six hundred long lines the characters being felicity liberty measure counterfeit countenance crafty conveyance cloaked collusion courtly abusion and other such shadowy personages but skelton's brightest and in all respects happiest poetry is surely what of it is neither allegorical nor satirical the charm of his writing lies in its natural ease and freedom its inexhaustible and untiring vivacity and these qualities are found both in their greatest abundance and their greatest purity where his subject is suggestive of the simplest emotions and has most of a universal interest his book of philip sparrow for instance an elegy on the sparrow of fair jane scroop slain by a cat in the nunnery of carrow near norwich extending with the commendation of the goodly maid to nearly fourteen hundred lines is unrivalled in the language for elegant and elastic playfulness and a spirit of whim that only kindles into the higher blaze the longer it is kept up the second part of commendation in particular is throughout animated and hilarious to a wonderful degree the refrain for this most goodly flower this blossom of fresh colour so jupiter me succour she flourisheth new and new in beauty and virtue hac caritate gemina o glorioso femina etc recurring often so suddenly and unexpectedly yet always so naturally has an effect like that of the harmonious evolutions of some lively and graceful dance have we not in this poem by the by the true origin of skelton's peculiar dancing verse is it not anacreontic as the spirit also of the best of his poetry undoubtedly is roy john haywood along with skelton viewed as he commonly has been only as a satirist is usually classed william roy a writer who assisted tyndall in his translation of the new testament and who is asserted by bayle to be the author of a singular work entitled read me and be not wroth for i say nothing but troth which is supposed to have been first printed abroad about fifteen twenty five this is also a satire upon wolsey and the clergy in general and is as bitter as might be expected from the supposed author who having begun his life as a friar spent the best part of it in the service of the reformation and finished it at the stake among the buffoon poets of this age is also to be reckoned john haywood styled the epigrammatist from the six centuries of epigrams or versified jokes which form a remarkable portion of his works haywood's conversational jocularity has the equivocal credit of having been exceedingly consoling both to the old age of henry the eighth and to his daughter queen mary it must have been strong jesting that could stir the sense of the ludicrous in either of these terrible personages besides a number of plays which are the most important of his productions haywood also wrote a long burlesque allegory 
which fills a thick quarto volume on the dispute between the old and the new religions under the title of a parable of the spider and the fly where it appears that by the spider is intended the protestant party by the fly the catholic but in which according to the judgment of old harrison he dealeth so profoundly and beyond all measure of skill that neither he himself that made it neither any one that readeth it can reach unto the meaning thereof scottish poets gawain douglas dunbar lindsay but while in england the new life to which poetry had awakened had thus as yet produced so little except ribaldry and buffoonery it is remarkable that in scotland where general social civilization was much less advanced the art had continued to be cultivated in its highest departments with great success and the language had already been enriched with some compositions worthy of any age perhaps the scottish poetry of the earlier part of the sixteenth century may be regarded as the same spring which had visited england in the latter part of the fourteenth the impulse originally given by the poetry of chaucer only now come to its height in that northern clime gawain douglas bishop of dunkeld who flourished in the first quarter of the sixteenth century and who is famous for his translation of the aeneid the first metrical version of any ancient classic that had yet appeared in the dialect of either kingdom affects great anxiety to eschew southron or english and to write his native tongue in all its breadth and plainness but it does not follow from his avoidance of english words that he may not have formed himself to a great extent on the study of english models at the same time it may be admitted that neither in his translation nor in his original works of king hart and the palace of honour which are two long allegories full the latter especially of passages of great descriptive beauty does douglas convict himself of belonging to the school of chaucer he is rather if not the founder at least the chief representative of a style of poetry which was attempted to be formed in scotland by enriching and elevating the simplicity of barber and his immediate followers with an infusion of something of what was deemed a classic manner drawn in part directly from the latin writers but more from those of the worst than those of the best age in part from the french poetry which now began in like manner to aspire towards a classic tone this preference by the scottish poets of latin and french to southron as a source from which to supply the deficiencies of their native dialect had probably no more reasonable origin than the political circumstances and feelings of the nation the spirit of the national genius was antagonistic to it and it therefore never could become more than a temporary fashion yet it infected more or less all the writers of this age and amongst the rest to a considerable extent by far the greatest of them all william dunbar this admirable master alike of serious and of comic song may justly be styled the chaucer of scotland whether we look to the wide range of his genius or to his eminence in every style over all the poets of his country who preceded and all who for ages came after him that of burns is certainly the only name among the scottish poets that can yet be placed on the same line with that of dunbar and even the inspired ploughman though the equal of dunbar in comic power and his superior in depth of passion is not to be compared with the elder poet either in strength or in general fertility of imagination finally to close the list comes another eminent name that of sir david lindsay whose productions are not indeed characterized by any high imaginative power but yet display infinite wit spirit and variety in all the forms of the more familiar poetry lindsay was the favourite throughout his brief reign and life of the accomplished and unfortunate james v and survived to do perhaps as good service as any in the war against the ancient church 
by the tales plays and other products of his abounding satiric vein with which he fed and excited and lashed up the popular contempt for the now crazy and tumbling fabric once so imposing and so venerated perhaps he also did no harm by thus taking off a little of the acrid edge of mere resentment and indignation with the infusion of a dash of merriment and keeping alive a genial sense of the ludicrous in the midst of such serious work if dunbar is to be compared to burns lindsay may be said to have his best representative among the more recent scottish poets in alan ramsay who does not however come so near to lindsay by a long way as burns does to dunbar surrey wyatt lindsay is supposed to have survived till about the year fifteen sixty seven before that date a revival of the higher poetry had come upon england like the rising of a new day two names are commonly placed together at the head of our new poetical literature lord surrey and sir thomas wyatt henry howard earl of surrey memorable in our history as the last victim of the capricious and sanguinary tyranny of henry the eighth had already in his short life which was terminated by the acts of the executioner in his twenty-seventh year carried away from all his countrymen the laurels both of knighthood and of song the superior polish alone of the best of surrey's verses would place him at an immeasurable distance in advance of all his immediate predecessors so remarkable indeed is the contrast in this respect which his poetry presents to theirs that in modern times there has been claimed for surrey as we have seen the honour of having been the first to introduce our existing system of rhythm into the language the true merit of surrey is that proceeding upon the same system of versification which had been introduced by chaucer and which had indeed had in principle been followed by all the writers after chaucer however rudely or imperfectly some of them may have succeeded in the practice of it he restored to our poetry a correctness polish and general spirit of refinement such as it had not known since chaucer's time and of which therefore in the language as now spoken there was no previous example whatever to this it may be added that he appears to have been the first at least in this age who sought to modulate his strains after that elder poetry of italy which thenceforward became one of the chief fountainheads of inspiration to that of england throughout the whole space of time over which is shed the golden light of the names of spenser of shakespeare and of milton surrey's own imagination was neither rich nor soaring and the highest qualities of his poetry in addition to the facility and general mechanical perfection of the versification are delicacy and tenderness it is altogether a very light and bland favonian breeze the poetry of his friend wyatt is of a different character neither so flowing in form nor so uniformly gentle in spirit but perhaps making up for its greater ruggedness by a force and a depth of sentiment occasionally which surrey does not reach the poems of lord surrey and sir thomas wyatt were first published together in fifteen fifty seven we give one of surrey's sonnets in praise of his mistress the fair geraldine from dr knott's edition of his poems the spelling is modernized give place ye lovers here before that spent your boasts and brags in vain my lady's beauty passeth more the best of yours i dare well sing than doth the sun the candlelight or brightest day the darkest night and there too hath a troth as just as had penelope the fair for what she saith ye may it trust as it by writing sealed wear 
and virtues hath she many mo than i with pen have skill to show i could rehearse if that i would the whole effect of nature's plaint when she had lost the perfid mould the like to whom she could not paint with ringing hands how she did cry and what she said i know it i i know she swore with raging mind her kingdom only set apart there was no loss by law of kind that could have gone so near her heart and this was chiefly all her pain she could not make the like again sith nature thus gave her the praise to be the chiefest work she wrought in faith methinks some better ways on your behalf might well be sought than to compare as ye have done to match the candle with the sun to surrey we owe the introduction into the language of our present form of blank verse the suggestion of which he probably took from the earliest italian example of that form of poetry a translation of the first and fourth books of the aeneid by the cardinal hippolito de medici or as some say by francesco maria molza which was published at venice in fifteen forty one a translation of the same two books into english blank verse appeared in the collection of surrey's poems published by tottle in fifteen fifty seven dr nott has shown that this translation was founded upon the metrical scottish version of gowan douglas which although not published till fifteen fifty three had been finished as the author himself informs us in fifteen thirteen but it ought not to be forgotten that as already remarked we have one example at least of another form of blank verse in the ormulum centuries before surrey's day the following earnestly passionate lines by wyatt are supposed to have been addressed to anne boleyn forget not yet the tried intent of such a truth as i have meant my great travail so gladly spent forget not yet forget not yet when first began the weary life ye know since when the suit the service none tell can forget not yet forget not yet the great essays the cruel wrong the scornful ways the painful patience in delays forget not yet forget not oh forget not this how long ago hath been and is the mind that never meant amiss forget not yet forget not then thine own approved the which so long hath thee so lewd whose steadfast faith yet never moved forget not this end of section thirty nine